The Money Show. Other people's money. In 2005, he wrote The Undercover Economist. In 2008, The Logic of Life. In 2017, 50 Things That Made the Modern World and did a fabulous podcast series to accompany it. And in 2020, How to Make the World Make Sense. Add up, I beg your pardon. My eyes are letting me down. Tim Harford, what are you guffawing at? On the line to us from Oxford this evening, a reputation for being a nice guy, a reputation for being probably one of the most followed economists in the United Kingdom and increasingly worldwide. Would that be fair? I think that's fair, Tim Harford. Oh, it's very kind of you to say so, especially the nice guy bit. That's important. It is, actually. It is. Um, You you do a lot of radio. You do lots of work for the BBC. Um, You've done the podcast series, as I mentioned, multiple podcast series. What is it that gets Tim Harford up in the day? I think, you know, I've got a word, but you give me the word and I'll tell you if it's the same as mine. But apart from my children, you mean. uh, (laughs) I think it's curiosity is the thing that drives me and that's the that's the final chapter of of my book how to make the world add up as well i'm just i just find the world a very interesting place there's lots of stuff i don't understand and i want to understand it better and that is the single unifying thing that links my podcast about vaccines my podcast about technology my work on economics uh my work on jazz and and this new book, which is all about how to think clearly about numbers and how to think clearly about the world. I mean, people are generally scared by numbers. They're generally scared by what's been called the dismal science of economics. They find it boring, I would argue, and uh, they'll never tweak me again, but if economics is boring, is that more to do with the economists that reflect the economy or is it the, the, the study of economics itself? Well, the economy is is absolutely fascinating and completely central to our lives. It determines who gets what, why some people are rich, some people are poor. It's all of the things that we do, yeah. all of the things that we make, all of the choices that we have are all bound up in the economy. But economics itself can be quite abstract. Uh, we're talking about hidden forces stuff that you can't see and so it all tends to suddenly turn into graphs and data and and theories and it can be quite hard to place it in the here and now and one of the challenges that I set people in in my new book is to to find a way to link what they're being told in you know the statistics in the news headlines with what they see all around them in their everyday life which is not easy but if you can combine the two that's where wisdom comes from I think. I think you and, and Bill Bryson says nice things about you. He says nobody makes statistics of everyday life more fascinating and enjoyable than Tim Harford. And very few people make lots of very complex subjects more enjoyable than Bill Bryson, other than Tim Harford, of course. Um, it, it's, it, it, you, you guys are opposite sides, I think, of the same coin. Bill Bryson has looked to make sense of the world and you're trying to make sense of the world. Oh, it's an enormously flattering comparison bill is the, the most wonderful writer but that, yes that certainly i would aspire to be as good as him and he just has this um this way of just looking at everyday phenomena everyday objects our own bodies uh, a walk in the woods uh the the science and the history of the science and and asking questions and what i'm trying to encourage people to do 
is to ask smart questions. You, you said a little earlier that we find statistics very intimidating. We find numbers very frightening. And one of the things that I really want people to understand is it's, it's actually not as difficult as you think. Anybody can ask the right sort of questions, the sort of questions that, that really clarify and explain, well, what is, this, what is this number really all about? You don't need to get into super complicated stuff. What, but what, what does make it challenging is you do need to be honest with yourself because we very easily lead ourselves astray with our wishful thinking or our, you know, our political preconceptions. And so it's, it's not the technical statistics that are challenging. It's that trying to find that moment of calm to ask open questions rather than thinking you've, you already know the answer. Does, can data explain everything? I mean, there's a, a great quote, I forget who said it, if you can't measure it, you can't fix it. And my sense is you're going around with cups and spoons and tape measures and digital devices looking to measure everything to get a number to help you explain it. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think you're right. You can, it can't explain everything. And, and this is one of the things, like when I said that the challenge is to combine your personal experience with what you're seeing in the statistics. That's, that's what I'm getting at. So our, our personal experience is so rich and vivid and we're seeing everything in, in vivid color and three dimensions and the smells and the tastes and, and we really feel it. Whereas a number on a spreadsheet, it's so <laughs> thin, it tells, us, it tells us very little. On the other hand, the spreadsheet, the data... That can tell us about the experiences of 8 billion people. It can track flows of money all around the planet. You can uh, analyze the, uh, the activity of 86 billion neurons in the human brain. So I don't want to dismiss what the data can show us. I don't want to dismiss what the spreadsheet shows us. But I don't want to dismiss personal experience as well. One way of thinking about it is uh, there's that that view you get when you've got your magnifying glass and you look, you look really, really closely at what's in front of you. And then there's the view that the eagle gets flying high above everything. The eagle's a long, long way away. It doesn't see in, in detail because everything's too far away. But the eagle is seeing this huge spread of information. And so this, for me, the statistics are like the eagle and then your personal experience is up close with the magnifying glass. And to say, well, which is true, which is right... Well, they're, they're showing us different things. And if you can com combine them together, rather than trying to use one in order to disprove the other, if you combine them together, then you're really starting to see the world clearly. I want to see the world of money clearly through your eyes. I'm curious. I'm going to ask you some questions. In just a moment, we are talking to Tim Harford this evening, the economist, the author, uh, the very successful podcaster and broadcaster in the United Kingdom. More with him in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. That other people tonight is Tim Harford, the economist on the line to us from the UK. This is the part where you get a little bit nervous, a little bit apprehensive, Tim Harford. I mean, in a world that is so full of data, where you are constantly buzzing with trying to make sense of numbers, trying to make sense of the world using data, how does that affect your personal finances? Are you the cobbler whose kids have no shoes or are you pretty good at this stuff? Well, my kids have shoes. I'm lucky enough that way. <laughs> uh, I, I've learned enough about financial economics to know that I don't have any 
great insight over the people who do this for a living, who have access to data by the millisecond and proprietorial trading platforms and all of all every insight and every piece of information you could have. So as far as stock market trading is concerned, I keep it pretty simple. I just invest in a mi mix of stocks and bonds and keep it passive and uh, just try and slowly put money in over time. I don't try to time the market. Really boring stuff. Um, of course, Sometimes you make make mistakes, you slip up, but I, I generally feel that I I do okay because I know I'm not that good at this. You say keep it passive, which is interesting. Um, so you go for exchange traded funds. You are of the Warren Buffett school um, in his dotage, where he wants you know ninety percent of his money uh, to be put into the S and P five hundred, his wife's inheritance, and uh, uh, the other into other index funds. I mean, it's it, it's he's not interested. He, he seems to have lost faith in most people's ability to play markets better than markets can play themselves. Yes, I, I don't think he's lost faith in his own ability to do that. No, no, no. But uh, he yeah. certainly doesn't think that the hedge funds are any good. There was a there was a famous bet he had uh, about a decade ago, where he he bet that a, a passive fund invested in the S and P five hundred, just a big big basket of American stocks, mm. that that would outperform uh, a, a selection of hedge funds. And I seem to remember he he won that bet. Now you could say, well, maybe the hedge funds are unlucky. Maybe if they'd picked a different time, the hedge funds would have been ahead. But it does go to show you can be awfully clever and it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll beat the market. And I know that I'm, I've got no particular insight, no particular way of, of knowing what the hot stocks are. Uh, and I'm also, I'm not that interested in trying to follow every detail of the market. The, the, the economy, yes, the market, yeah, maybe not so much. And so, yeah, that's why I try and keep it simple. Um, when you when you look at work life and as an economist try to assess whether or not the concept of retirement will exist, you are 47, 48 years old this year, thereabouts. Yes, 47. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're um, looking, uh, <laughs> checking um, up on you, me. Oh, of course, yes. Well, one does this. Um, do you see yourself ever retiring as an economist? As somebody who, you know, you've been very successful, you have multiple books, you are sought after as a communicator on, on economy and money. But for many people in the UK, retirement is almost an entitlement. And I wonder if somebody of your generation and younger generations has got the same luxury of certainty when it comes to retirement. Well, the luxury that I have is I love my job. I love what I do. Useful, it, it? Yeah. It's always, it's really useful. It's always changing. I'm always learning new things. And so that's a tremendous privilege. And I, I imagine that at some stage I'll want to pull back a little bit and do a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. Um, but of course, we don't necessarily get to choose our own fates. It could be that um, nobody's very interested in what I have to say in 10 years' time or in 20 years' time. But certainly in an ideal world, I would keep doing a little bit of, of what I do because I love what I do. Uh, financially, retirement isn't that complicated. <laughs> you have to put aside enough money. Uh, it, it's, it's difficult because it's difficult to save that amount of money. It's difficult to make sure that you've got enough. But I don't think it's complicated. I think we often overcomplicate the basic problem. 
But the, the biggest problem, of course, is I think there's a retirement crisis brewing in the world because most people don't put away enough. We're in a very consumerist society. Um, we're in a society that rewards the here and now more than it rewards the long term. Would you agree? Uh, I don't know about society, but certainly people have always loved the here and now. Uh, we're, we're definitely hardwired to, to, to favor that juicy steak now rather than the juicy steak tomorrow. Some of, I may, some of I may the not have teeth. That, I may not have teeth tomorrow. <laughs> the juicy steak exactly. must become now, yes. Well, what, what is that old, that old proverb? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's, yep. That is how we think. Now, there's a wonderful study that I write about in one of my earlier books, the, the Logic of Life, where I talk about people being offered the, this is back in the days when Netflix would post a DVD to you. Yeah. And so the, your Netflix queue, you'd have to pre-plan. And what, what they observed was people would, would keep shifting the, uh, the serious art films down in the Netflix, Netflix clue, uh, queue. So they'd want to see uh, Kieslowski's Three Colors Red, or they'd want to see Schindler's List. But, it, but not, not next. The next um, thick film in the queue would always be Fast and Furious or American Pie or something like that. And so the, the experimenters actually looked into this and they found, found that if they gave people the chance to pick a film in advance, they'd pick something serious. And then if they offered them the chance to swap at the last minute, people would think, oh, what was I thinking? Of course, I want to see Mrs. Doubtfire. I want to see a, a, a fun Robin Williams comedy. I don't want to you know, I don't want to see Schindler's List. That's far too serious. And um, so we're always uh, virtue tomorrow and pleasure today. And that's, that's very human. And it's true for food. It's true for movies. And of course, it's true for pensions as well. And I'm no different. But of course, you have to, at a certain point, you have to sort of plan and try and commit yourself to save enough. How do you overcome that short-termism? How do we develop enough future, uh, faith in the future to take that long-term view? Well, there are a couple of ways you can do it. One is to just say to yourself, I'm going to make it automatic. So I don't constantly have to fight this battle with myself. So along with the not, not trying to pick clever stocks and along with the just put a little bit of money in every month so you don't try and time the market. The other reason why that's sensible is you can say, well, I'm going to make a direct transfer from my bank account every month into, an, into a retirement savings account set it up once. I only need to have strong willpower once and then I never need to think <laughs> about it again. And they, you know, there's, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And some of the most successful retirement savings approaches, made, I mean, made famous by Richard Thaler and Shlomo Bernazzi. Uh, Thaler is co-author of the book Nudge and, and the Nobel Prize winner mm. in economics. They, they, their theory is, um, or their, their policy is called Save More Tomorrow. So they get people to sign up to transfer money to retirement savings, not now, but next time they get a pay rise. The pay rise will go into their retirement savings. It works very well because the moment of pain is postponed. Tim Hartford, I wish we had more time, but we don't. It is the curse of the, of the business and the industry. But thank you all the way from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Tim Harford, economist and author this evening. The wisdom of Tim Harford and 20 years of data analysis, collection and dissection on The Money Show.